Welcome to another episode of Drumversations, the podcast. My name is Ruth Lomax. And I'm Mark Lomax. And we want to thank you for joining us. Um, also, thank you if you are tuning in on Spotify or on uh, iTunes. iTunes. Or SoundCloud. Or if you just found us via the... Out in cyberspace. <laughs> That's what we used to say in the 90s. That is what we used to say in the world wide webs. That's right. So what's going on, Mark? How are you? Well, I'm good. I got a nap. Okay. What about you? I'm doing well, you know, considering we're still in this um, very crazy space um, and time and life. And so we're just making it work. Guess what's back? Corona. Corona's back. (laughs) Guess what never left? (laughs) Racism won the second round. Now Corona's back for the third round. We'll we'll see how it goes. Yeah, it looks like there's something else brewing out there that is the worst. Oh, yeah, another pig virus or something. Yeah, something else that's the worst that we've ever seen. So. Well, you know, it's like what Ice-T said. At this point, wearing a mask is a test of, of your IQ. That's right. You know, keep it on. Keep it on. Keep it on. So you had some interesting Facebook interactions in the last week. Did I? You did. Okay. You posted about high school mm. and how everything um, that's going on around uh, racial identity uh, and even the, the recent kind of racialized protests behind police brutality brings up these ideas of intersectionality Mm -hmm. and self-concept, but specifically for women in a conversation you and I were having around why black women who even compared to black men are disproportionately uh, killed and brutalized by police, but specifically to your experience as one of two, I think, uh, women of color, black women in your predominantly white Catholic school. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I I guess all of this has kind of, like, to your point, just this time and space has really allowed a lot of us to be reflective and to think about things. What um, else do you have to do? That or <laughs> drink and right. eat. So And even get more self-reflective. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I definitely started thinking about my experience, um, at Bishop Watterson High School in Columbus, Ohio, um, where to your point, I was one of two African-American women. Um, there were no, there were no men in my class and I was thinking, and I'm like, I don't really remember maybe, there were no men or no maybe two African-American men at my high school, maybe three. I don't know. There weren't a lot of us. You mean at the whole school? At the whole school. Oh, wow. (laughs) There were not a lot of us. Um, So when people are like, yeah, I went to an all-white school. No, I legit went to an all-white school. But yeah, it's it's made me kind of reevaluate what um, my experience was like and come to terms with some things. And um, it's helped me to shape how I view uh, just where we're at right now. in this space and time. So in your post... I don't know if that was a question or what well, you wanted no, me to do with I, that. I, I was just saying that that was something that came up in conversation between us that you then shared on Facebook. And in your post, um, you went through a bit of what your experience was, was about. Um, so 
you know, just kind of for the audience in podcast land, tell us about what that trauma uh, evolved from, you know, and, and the experiences you had from very briefly, because I mean, that could be a long time, but in school period, because you went to, a lot of people don't know this, Ruth went to private schools and I went to public schools. So when we first met, she thought she was better than me. And I had to prove how thought articulate. Thought she was better than, no. <laughs> but those, those experiences in private school had a really, um, in some cases, traumatic impact on your idea of self-concept. Right. Right. So, and there was a difference between your elementary experience and in your middle and high school experience that kind of manifested in college. Yeah. Which was kind of the, the point of your Facebook post. And then it resonated with so many people. We thought we should talk about it now. Okay. So give us a little so of what's, that context. So what's funny about that, just as a sidebar, by the time Mark had met me, I was really coming out of a lot of trauma and a lot of crazy and I definitely got a lot of my therapy and coming to terms with all of that kind of in college. So that was around the time that you and I had met. I was, I was sort of still a wreck. I'm still a wreck. Um, but now I'm a manageable wreck. It's like it's like you know you see it's that progress. it's, it's like you see that car and you don't realize on the inside you know there's some broken shit on the inside of the car it looks pretty good from the outside but on the inside you know you open up the, the glove compartment and it like collapses in your hand no but um, so yeah going back really briefly um, I was I'm an only child first of all so don't I know it. I I wasn't um, fortunate in the way that a lot of people could literally go home and, and have a different experience. My experience um, at school, um, I would come home and not really be able to process a lot of what had happened because I have older parents, um, parents from that generation that we talked about in a, a few podcasts ago where they thought... This is only the third one. That, that was the last one. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to blow up the spot. Maybe some people think we have a hundred podcasts under our belt, nah. man. Don't blow up the spot. But you had old parents. I had old parents. Have, I have old parents. Have. Yes. They are still here with us. And they are older. old. And we love but them. They, <laughs> they're awesome. Um, but, but yeah. They were that generation that just didn't really deal with things directly. Yeah. And, and you know, they thought they were doing exactly, they were doing exactly what I wanted them to do, but I didn't realize it was not what I needed because I was not mature enough to understand what I actually needed. Um, but I went to St. Joseph Montessori from... Ooh. Um, age five until, uh, until seventh grade. And it was really a magical, amazing place. Um, shout out to Montessori education. Um, because Joe's has always been a bubble. It's, it's a bubble in the best way you could yeah. talk about a bubble. Yeah. Our girls had a good bubble. We had, you know, my, some of my best friends still to this day, I met there, um, I was exposed to all kinds of culture, all kinds of demographics, um, even learning style. I mean, we had kids, some kids that you knew had some learning deficits, but it was okay. We all kind of helped and managed. We were treated like independent thinkers, and it was amazing. And then I was basically pulled out of that environment 
for my own reasons. I want it to go to a new school. I want it to get ready for a traditional high school experience. So I really um, rallied to go to a more traditional school. And of course, my mom wasn't putting me in public school. Um, so I went to um, Immaculate Conception. And just by the name of the school, it should let you know. <laughs> but it, it was a different bubble. It was a different bubble. It was very insular, very much. The folks that went to that school, they had been there all their lives. It was small. Um, and when I say small, I mean small-minded. Everyone was very, like, extremely Catholic. Um, very white. Very, very white. And now in that set. In that situation, I think I was maybe the only, there might have been two black people, maybe, I'll say three, in the whole school. And that's talking first through eighth grade. And there were like two eighth grade classes. Each class, each grade level had at least two classrooms. So fairly, fairly decent amount of kids, right? But in that school, I was taught that you know, my learning style was not valued. Um, I was I was placed into ninth grade, not promoted, and mm-hmm. and my principal made sure that she pulled me out um, and told me that this was happening. That basically she was doing you a favor. Yeah, yeah, and basically letting <laughs> me know I, I'm not like academically cutting it. Um, I was also a kid that had to go out to the math van. I remember, you know, there were these big like camper looking things on our playground and you would there was like tutoring and things like that that would happen and I had to go to the math van to to be assessed and whatever I don't really remember any any tutoring happening I just remember taking like IQ tests and things like that so I was already being so extremely othered yeah I was yeah, being othered. challenging your intellectual ability yeah and so by this point I felt like gosh I'm I'm super I'm super dumb I'm, I'm a complete dumbass at this point what I had known before about who I was and what I loved about school that down was that was done in, in just two years seventh and eighth grade yeah but that, those are really important years in terms of developing positive self-concept. That's early adolescence. Right. Not even mentioning the fact that I looked extremely different than everybody else. Well, you just happen to be Afro-American. Yeah. I looked really <laughs> different. My body was looking different than, you know, the popular pretty blonde hair, blue-eyed girls. Um, I can see a girl that I I think about, and she was kind of the standard, the gold stamp. None of those boys were paying me any bit of attention in that way. Now, they were calling me, you know, monkey and, you know, Whitney Houston is hot for a black girl, don't you think? I mean, like, those were the comments I was hearing in seventh and eighth grade. So So you went from an intellectually stimulating and nurturing environment where everyone was taught... And, and and everyone was treated as you know critical thinkers, intellectual, independent thinkers, and people, right? Human beings, community. That's what St. Joe's. That's what we loved, or what I came to love about it. When you said we should take our girls there, and and I completely agree. It was one of those kind of holistic, well-rounded places. To immaculate conception, where not only were you being attacked by teachers and administrators for what they considered 
your intellectual deficiencies, but socially and in the general culture of the school, you weren't yeah. accepted. And so you didn't have any solace. None. You didn't have any place where you felt like you belonged. Not to mention, my parents were going through a, a divorce. Crazy divorce. Yeah. So I was physically not even in the same. Okay, so geographically speaking, I live less than a mile from, yeah, from icy, icy but because i lived on the side where it's it's more linden and less clintonville no 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 you you were in linden yeah but they're trying to call that part of linden that you lived in east clintonville yeah, now yeah, yeah. because of gentrification but back then it was just linden yeah and and because of that <laughs> there were you know i had some Shout out, because I did have some good girlfriends. I had about three that were really cool. At IC. At IC, and they really helped me and my family um, through this time because, you know, my because I lived, I had to live with my aunt, which was on the other side of town. My mom worked, you know, on this other side of town, and I would just kind of be like, okay, what am I going to do until 5 o'clock? And yeah. so um, we really needed... And, and those friends were really open with me and they were like, yeah, you can come hang out at our house, you know, until your mom can pick you up. But that just goes to show that even if you have two or three friends that you felt like you could count on, the pressure of not being accepted or being appreciated or being encouraged academically and not being accepted, being uh, appreciated and being valued socially from the the general body of the school, right, with the exception of these three people, can far outweigh even those bright spots. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, um, it's funny because when I posted uh, last week, a lot of people, and, and we'll get probably into this when we talk about the high school experience, but a lot of people were like, oh, you were so happy. You were so, you know, I remember you as being fun and outgoing. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't want to other myself even more. Well, let, let's get this. So, okay, you're going through this. I mean, it's transition anyway, right? Seventh and eighth grade, that's early adolescence. So your brain, your body is going through all the transition. You were transitioning from one school to another. Your family is in transition. And that's how you enter high school. Yeah. And, and once my parents, um, their divorce was final, I was, um, mom, I need to get a pool pass because all of the girls had pool passes. And, you know, there was this pool that everybody went to in Clintonville. And so I, I got a pool pass. Is that Olympic? Yeah. I got a pool pass. But I remember... Like my group of friends from middle school, they were now knowing people that we were going to be in high school with. And I remember they all got a cabana. I, I wasn't invited to the cabana. Mm. And I remember that as like a teensy tiny microaggression that just kind of stung because I was like, yeah, I've got a pool pass, but like my friends all can hang out in this like cool area and they've got the space and they all know each other. Um, and you know, they're all like laying out and getting tan and, you know, putting sun in, in their hair to get it lightened. And of course I'm doing all of those same things because you wanted to belong. I looked like a fool. I had like orange hair. Yes. <laughs> But yeah. So you're entering high school mm -hmm. in, in that context and it, it got worse. Yeah. So in high school, what happened was I kind of thought, oh, this is going to be the time now that I can meet, you know, my, my crew. I can meet my, my, your people, my people. Um, and I, I did meet some 
some friends um, my freshman year, and but then other things started happening. So now, you know, now you're like, oh, I want boys to notice me, and you know, there was there was that attention, but it was not like the attention that you would want. Um, it was more like a hyper-sexualized... Object. Objectification. Object, yeah, objectification. Which goes back, I, I think, in the last podcast, we were talking about, um, you know, the human zoos. Mm. And the lady we forgot uh, to... Well, you brought her up. Yeah. Sarah Bartman. Sarah Bartman. Right? That mm-hmm. hyper-sexualized... Um, odyssey or not odyssey oddity of her figure of her of her physical form right because she was built the way we imagine you know black women being built you know thick in the south you know full lips all that kind of stuff and and for the european construct of beauty right that didn't fit and so she became a spectacle and in this case you could even make that connection i think just from hearing your stories over the years that you felt like an object, more a spectacle than someone who was valued as somebody I, I could date if I was a white guy who had Yeah, there to was be none black, of that. Right. <laughs> there was none of that. First of all, I was like the girl that might have seemed cool enough to like talk to in class, but you were definitely not dating me. But you might have thought, well, you know, maybe there's some parts of her that you know, to your point. It would be easy. Yeah. Because you just wanted to fit in or belong. And, and that was definitely a thing. And, you know, I think about the people that were like, wow, I didn't know this was happening. It's funny because you didn't have to know it was happening. Like, they, there was privilege in the mm-hmm. fact that they didn't have to know. That was your experience. That was because my Because you were one of only two mm-hmm. women of color, young women of color, black women, black mm-hmm. young ladies, who were having this experience. So it was literally... Hyper-focus. I mean, yeah. And I think back to my freshman Spanish class, and there was a junior who every day, I was at a Catholic school, so I had skirt on. Every day, or every every time I saw this kid, he would, you know, do things like he would flip my skirt up or, you know, he would do like anything you could do to make somebody feel icky and uncomfortable like this dude did to me. So it's toxic masculinity on top of... These racialized microaggressions. Yeah, on top of, you know, when you find out the Spanish word for monkey and somebody is calling you mono and, you know, um, asking you, like, why aren't you, like, good at track? Why aren't you good at basketball? I'm extremely uncoordinated and I cannot play (laughs) basketball for shit. However, what I was really interested in um, from the time I was a kid until I got to IC was cheerleading. I was a phenomenal cheerleader. And I never wanted to touch that. I In high school? Mm-mm. Really? No, because I felt like that is all people need is to see me in a skirt and to, no. So that goes And to, I would have been a bomb-ass cheerleader, by the way. <laughs> I, I know you would. But that goes to the whole idea of identity and, and people, black people in America at certain class levels, at certain in certain environments, not wanting to eat chicken and watermelon. Because they don't want to reinforce those stereotypes. Oh my gosh, right? and that's that's. I'm glad you brought that up because I also was definitely pray. I, I fell victim to this internalized 
racism where I hated black men. Internalized oppression and, and surplus powerlessness. Yeah, yeah, I hated black men. I, and I've, I've told you this story. I had a friend. Disclaimer, well, for those who don't know us, I am a black man. So there's hope. There's light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> But go ahead. Um, yeah, there is light at the end. It all, it all changed when I got to college, I promise. But um, when I was in high school, I did not want people to think I liked black men at all. So when I was at home, I was like turning on the box, which was <laughs> video music you can control. Um, and I was like, I was discovering how much I loved and needed hip hop, right? I was obsessed with native tongues, with De La Soul, with well, I mean they are yeah, native tongues, but tongues. I was I was but super Q Tip and Five Q Tip Tribe Called Quest. I was obsessed with. Yeah. I was obsessed with um, anything East Coast, anything that felt conscious, 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 so, conscious. Wait, are you are you saying? Because this is this is but new on, for our conversation. Is this is. where you were connecting with black culture? I was, and I was you didn't drawing. Have it in I was drawing like Africa and putting like red, black, and green. And did you have I, a posse patch that you secretly hid under your I uniform? Did, <laughs> actually, I didn't wear it, but I had it, <laughs> and I had this whole other identity mm-hmm. where I would go with my my friends that I met at St. Joe's. Right, so I'm still connected with those friends. Now they're at a at a um, very similar Catholic school, but this Catholic school where they were at was primarily black. Oh, Bishop Hartley. Bishop Hartley. Okay. And so I was I was like secretly hanging out with these friends on the weekends, and so but to my white friends, no, I I didn't want anything to do with black anything. So that means that. It was like a dual... Well, I had that's like what I was a, about to say. In the Du Boisian sense, you had the double consciousness, right? Yes. W.E.B. Du Bois. In the Du Boisian uh, sense. Yeah, I Du Boisian, did. you know. I, I can be academical. academic. Academical. Dr. Lomax. You know, the black academics. Yes. Um, but Du Bois talked about the double consciousness and how when you go into white spaces, there is a... I'm, I'm splitting metaphors because Dunbar talks about the mask. Right. So I mean, you have to split. You have to split. And so that, you have to be. Yes. You ha- you had to prove your white bona fides, your exactly. bona fides, right, to try to fit in and that, with those folks in high school. But when yes. you were with the Hartley folks, I was me. You were you were more of what you thought you wanted to be, but yeah. there was still conflict between those identities. It was awful. But the splitting is like what happens in psychology. You know, where where people kind of. It's not like you have a multiple personality, but it, it literally is you're splitting. There's there's white, quite quite literally white versus uh, black. Yeah. And and that is how I lived my life. And so imagine like everything that is going on with folks from 14 until 17 anyway. Like I had this on top of it. Like yeah. it's a wonder I can sit here and function relatively normally well that, that's a great segue so you said in order to survive basically and, and to mitigate to to the extent that you could the maltreatment and negative behavior that you received from your white classmates at Watterson you had to perform whiteness basically right you had to show that you belong to kind of get them off your back even though they were still on your back because the perception of you was not this whiteness that you were trying to 
perform, right? And then at Hartley, you felt like you could be more yourself. And then you get to college, and, and it's a totally different... I become now <laughs> the black girl with some privilege. Right. Because where you talk I, white. I, I talk white. You, you had a higher class standard. Yeah, because that that's what... And I think class is interesting to bring into this. So my parents... I, I didn't have student loans when I went away to college. My parents did well financially. Yeah, her daddy was driving Mercedes and all that kind of stuff. You know, and I had money. Had I had money. Forts. I would argue <laughs> that I was probably in a better um, wealth standing. Socioeconomic. Yeah. Then, um, thanks, for, thanks for helping me out with my I terms. You. I Thank got you. you. I had um, my coffee today. You yeah, haven't. I haven't. I've had broccoli. But... Um, <laughs> So by the time I got to college, it was like, who is this black girl that thinks she's white? And I was like, oh, really? And that shifted a whole, uh, that, that put a whole other identity on you. So then that I'm you didn't thinking have. these poor Appalachian black folks that quite literally, now I'm having like a superiority complex mm -hmm. because now I'm putting myself above them. And I'm like, these people are dirty. They're, they're dirty black people from Appalachia. Um, they don't have money. They've never traveled. I've done all of this hip shit. And I'm this, I'm this like pretty black girl from the city. And so then I, I put myself in this other space, which was also very damaging and very dangerous right, so for my mental state. The, the um, Unitarian theologian Tandeka wrote a great book. It's one of my favorite books. And Ruth used to so be mad at me when I was walking around because the cover is, is, is interesting. It, it's white people on the cover putting on white face. And the book is called Learning to Be White. And it's... You know, it makes people uncomfortable alone. So I would carry it literally just to carry it and make people uncomfortable. <laughs> Ruth didn't like that. But I, I bring that up because in the book, she really does do a deep dive into several case studies with her white friends to learn how they developed this white identity. And the journey that you have related to us in, in the last few minutes is the path, even if we don't go to predominantly white schools, we're in a predominantly white culture, is the path that black people have to go through or go down to learn how to be black, right? Because those identities, black and white, did not exist mm. prior to the 15th century and the advent of Western European chattel slavery, mm -hmm. right? So all of those things are operating and performed in relation to each other. So you had to learn how to be white as a black American to get through middle school and high school, but you also had to learn how to be black mm -hmm. in that same period yep. to deal with your other friends at, at Hartley. And then you get to college <laughs> and it kind of, th those identities explode again yeah. because of the class dynamic that you really didn't have in the same way at Watterson and Hartley. Right. right? So how does someone that has your experience that bifurcated double consciousness then you get to this place where you are at least socioeconomically superior even if you share some ethnic cultural components how do you learn how to be black in the midst of all that psychological trauma and what does that even mean Ooh, um that's a lot i think what was helpful for me is that i was I was in um, sociology, so I was taking a lot of classes where I was learning 
about self. Um, and then I, I, I had to find my, my within group. I had your to within find, group. What yeah. Is, what is that? So that's, that's like your, your group, your safe space, like your people that are your people, people who you can be, you, you may have some, some shared, um, some shared similarities and some shared experiences. And they are people that you, I kind of hate the word safe space, but I'm going to use it again. It's the again. place where you can be safe to be fully yeah. who you are. And so no I definitely what. found my people. But um, your people was a diverse group. But you have to find that. Well, I'm saying, like, I mean, even as a black person trying to discover her blackness in the context of all this trauma, you didn't necessarily, and correct me if I'm wrong, you didn't necessarily retreat into the blackest of blackest spaces, so to speak. No, because they wouldn't have me. Talk about that. Um, when I tried to do that, and, and so I talk a lot, a lot of this kind of, when I think about this time of my life, it's through dating. And this through... is what made her love me. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Tell the truth. Okay. Tell the truth. Shame the devil. Yeah. Um, so, so really through dating is, is kind of how I figured this out. Um, I, I immediately went to the darkest, most blackest dude out there, right? So wait, are you talking about complexion? Or are, you ta- are you talking about your kind of conceptualization of what black was? All the above. Okay. He was complexion dark. He was... He fit the description. And he was a dark person. And by that, I mean, he, he was not, like, he was not the cat. He did a lot of crazy things to me. But I, I, I went into that space, and that's when I knew, when I was around all these basketball players and all these, these black men. She was a B-girl. This was the first time I had been able to, like, hang out with a group of black men and experience, like, okay, they're making... Fried chicken, fried chicken at three in the morning. Like, what is that all about? And they got their wave caps they on. They got the wave caps on. Everything <laughs> smells like incense. Like, what is that? We're listening to Bob Marley. Like, there's this whole thing happening. And I knew very quickly, because somebody flat out said, like, he, he looked at me and he said, sweetheart, do you know who you are? Hmm. And I was like, I never have to question whether, the, you know, and, and I went into this whole thing. But what that told me is I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't there yet. I was still holding a lot of the, those past, um, that past baggage, and I was bringing it with me. And it, I was like opening it up mm-hmm. while I'm having, you know, these conversations with this, this entirely new group of people that I wanted to so desperately be a part of. Um, and it wasn't until my white best friend helped me to see that because she, while skin color was white, you know, people used to say she's blacker than you. <laughs> and, and those kind of converse, those kind of comments, like people think that that's like cool, but that's not funny. It's not it, it's funny. Very damaging. It's super damaging. And so I was like, well, damn, maybe she is blacker than me. What she was, was she was from the same socioeconomic status as these folks. And so 
she had a different relatability than mm-hmm. I did. Mm-hmm. I just, I didn't have it. And it, it wasn't until I could be around her and my, my best, my other best friend who is a black gay male who grew up Jehovah Witness. I mean, it was like having conversations with those folks that I was then able to like process. And he, he and I were both only children. We came from very similar, um, status mm-hmm. if you will he was also a spoiled rich black kid yes and spoiled rich and black yes <laughs> and so that's ruth <laughs> that was um that was very helpful for me and i kind of went on a tangent and so i forget what you asked no, me no 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 and you, i don't know you, if i answered you it. answered the question and and i just want i wanted us to have this conversation so people really at least get a glimpse if not completely understand into how, on the one hand, how fragile black identity is, which is why uh, we always have to declare our blackness because we are often in spaces where it's not valued, right? I mean, in, in the whole and it's history- it's misunderstood. Well, that's what I was about I to mean, say. It's in the whole history of Africans in America, blackness, I, I said in my dissertation, it's the, new, it's the, it's the newest ethnicity on the planet. Because it really didn't even become a thing until after slavery ended. And we had to figure out who we were without a master or somebody who quote unquote owned us telling us that we were slaves, right? Because we still aren't treated as Americans. We definitely weren't treated as Americans, like fully enfranchised Americans at that point. And so we created this thing called blackness. Uh, Mary Baraka calls it the blues people. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so on the one hand, that's very fragile because we still are figuring it out. On the other hand, you know, it's not valued. And, you know, in order to be successful economically, be successful academically, be successful in any kind of way in white American spaces, which are the majority of the spaces, you have to put on this mask of whiteness. And that creates a whole other layer of trauma because f- to your point, you were trying to reconcile in college the the ideals and the identity that was established by those ideals that was cultivated primarily from middle school, seventh grade through high school, right? Those traumatic white years in a black space in college. Yeah. And even though you had the Hartley experience, right? Those kids were probably still more close to who you were because it was still a private Catholic right. environment, right? Right, right, right. Than the kids that you engaged in college, right? Right. Those those bras from Cleveland, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> who, who have a oh, whole different no idea shade, of blackness? No, no, shade. no, no. Those are my homies. No, I'm, it's not about shade, but I'm saying. If you think about places like Cleveland, very yeah. old urban areas, it was it was a, it was it was totally, totally different. different. And they right? these Cleveland dudes checked me immediately. Yeah, <laughs> they were like, "Who? What? Who are you? What?" And I was just like, "Oh shit! Like I have some work <laughs> to do." My question for you, Doctor Lomax, is when you met me. Tell me what that was like, because like I had said earlier, I was kind of still in that was, shit show mode. So the interesting thing you did, okay, so I didn't grow up with the social economic privilege that you had growing up. I didn't go to 
private schools. I went to Columbus City Schools, which did me no favors. But I had educational privilege because my parents both had graduate degrees. My father has a doctorate degree. My mom has a master's. So education was important. Reading. My mother was a reading. Yeah, was. She retired. A reading specialist. My father owns thousands and thousands of books, right? So I had access to information, and my father was on the process of becoming, right, Mm -hmm. learning who he was as a black man who had studied, you know, biblical dialects and could read Aramaic and Greek and Hebrew and Latin and all that kind of stuff. And my mother was just trying to be a single, not trying, she was a single mom Mm -hmm. trying to make ends meet. Right. And oftentimes there was more month than money. Right. And so I still grew up in Linden, the hood, but my home environment, even after my parents divorced, which happened earlier in my life than yours. Right. And had its own set of traumas in terms of identity, not growing up with a, a strong male figure in the home. Right. Although I had one in my mom's boyfriend of 12 years, but he wasn't there day in and day out, and he wasn't my dad. Mm-hmm. But he's the closest thing I got. And I had these composite models of masculinity that I had to put together over time, right? So there were identity issues in that sense. But I had what you would think is your typical black urban experience. I went to predominantly black schools that were underfunded. <laughs> you know, I, I lived in a neighborhood that now is beginning to experience gentrification, right? Mm-hmm. But my street in the context of the neighborhood, which had high crime, high violence, all that kind of stuff, was really interesting. It was unique because it was like a working class street. Yeah. So when you turn onto Kimmore from Dresden, right, and you're headed east toward Cleveland Avenue, you know, the first two houses were owned by an artist, Joe Howard. So I had a living, breathing, working black artist on my street who was doing well enough to own two homes. That's one dope. he rented out and one that he lived in with his wife and children, right? And then a couple of doors down, I had a firefighter. Hmm. And I had a machinist across the street from him. A couple of doors down, we had teachers. And then we had our first crack head. Well, he was a crack dealer, but he smoked his own crack, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then never, a couple never of doors down, we had some retirees. Yeah, don't smoke your own product. Then we had some retirees, and we had another machinist whose wife, he did well enough that his wife could stay at home, and they had like five or six kids. Hmm. But he did well enough in this trade, right, that his wife could stay home, be present for the kids, and he worked and came back. And then across the street from them was an accountant. Then was my mom's, and his wife was a teacher. Then was, it was my mom, and she's a teacher. Next door to us was a postal worker whose wife, he was able to work he had mm-hmm. his own business, mm-hmm. and he, he worked at the post office. His wife was able to stay at home. She was like, is our second mom, mm-hmm. right? And that was like our street. And then we right. had another um, skilled trades person, a nurse, two nurses, and other folks. And really, on my street, in terms of the 13 boys that were my friends that grew up on my street, with the exception of one, all of their parents were married except two of us. That's amazing. So, right, in the context of even that you know, quintessential, what you would consider you know, low income, relatively lower middle class, rather mm-hmm. um, urban environment, you know, there was a lot of family stabilization. Folks owned their homes. Most of the people were married. Right. So I had a unique block, but my neighborhood wasn't that stable. Mm. Right. So I had kind of the best of both 
of those kind of ideal or in un, in and not so ideal experiences because the neighborhood was crazy but my street was cool right and and you know my teachers sucked right we, we, and so we share that experience uh, maybe not the same way in terms of ra racial construct but i had more teachers tell me that i wasn't worth it than i had tell me i was yeah um and our books were old you know we didn't learn we didn't have ap classes excuse me the way other folks had you know those advanced placement classes and mm -hmm. i was not able i got into the college i wanted to but i couldn't get the scholarship because i wasn't prepared mm -hmm. like my school experience even i even though i was a 3.8 student in high school didn't prepare me to be successful in college for the audition and everything else. So there was all of that on top of it. The one thing I didn't have to deal with in the way that you did was a racialized concept of who I was. Mm -hmm. That happened in college. When I got to OSU, that's where I hit academic racism and other types of racism in a different way. Yeah. You know? So when I met you, um, it was funny to me because as somebody who read a lot early on and read heavier books early on, theology, history, political science, psychology, all of that kind of stuff, um, I was thinking differently than my peer group in the public school system that I grew up in. And when we first met, the stuff that you were talking about and the things that you experienced, I felt like I had met somebody that was on my intellectual level and I'm not saying that to say, oh, well, no, I mean, word? that changed later. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You're still evolving. Well, okay. <laughs> but no, it's, it was just like those conversations that we had and even have now weren't the kind of conversations that I was having with the folks that I was around at that time. And it was really refreshing. And as much as I study and work in race, mm for you to have had the experiences that you had in terms of racism and how it really impacted your self-identity, self-concept, and, and even kind of who you've become. Mm. It's really fascinating that, you know, we connected the way we did, you know. Um, so, how, so all of this came about because something about the current context that we're seeing ourselves in this layered trauma of, of a pandemic of police brutality of uh social unrest and, and these racial conversations triggered this kind of i don't know it it was like it opened a floodgate of emotions it did for you last week yeah that led to the post and led to us processing these things so what do you think about the current climate is triggering because if it's triggering for you, it's got to be triggering for a lot of other people, particularly black women. Because I imagine that all of those layers, you know, that you have to suppress in order to, to kind of just exist. Like you said, in this time to um, reflect and everything else and getting triggered by everything that's happening. All of those layers have to, I mean, it had to take some work consciously or subconsciously to put those safeguards there and now it's coming undone. It's weird and I, I, I wonder if it's not because I am seeing posts 
and seeing statuses from those very people who I was in school with during one of the hardest times of my life in reconciling and dealing with race and identity. You mean like Black Lives Matter posts or um, n- not supportive? Supportive. Supportive. Huh. Um, I'm seeing folks support this movement. And I think back to when I would have really appreciated that support and I didn't feel it. Now, you know, to a lot of a lot of folks when they responded to that post, they said they didn't know. They said they didn't know. My thing is if you see someone who is clearly an outsider, if you will, like you know they need And you support. know how people are talking about those folks behind their back. And you've I, I <laughs> guarantee they heard stuff. Yeah. I guarantee it. Yeah. Um and it's interesting because some of the people that were closest to me in high school who I'm friends with on Facebook, they haven't reached out, but no shade um, to that either. Well, I think you know, we all come at this in our own time and in our say. own space. It's really interesting, the different la- levels and layers of comfort when it comes to this too, because you know the whole idea of white shame and white fragility means or refers to the fact that when white people in particular become aware of these issues one of the very first things they do is center themselves right and so i was very intentional when i said this post when i said this post when i posted posted, i feel like i said it but when i posted it i said i don't want pity i don't want a hand i don't want a pat on the back and what did i get i got a lot of pity and a lot of pats on the back and i think that to some degree and we talked about this like i can't absolve you right, right of your sins like of your racial sins your racial sins as much as i would like to have that control and that power i i, <laughs> I don't have it um and so i'm not saying this to like slam folks that reached out to me because i do genuine i i genuinely appreciate the love but i i need for it to go a little deeper and i need for folks to really examine like where wh- who are you in all of this and what are you doing you know is it just because i think about this even with the current movement like are we just putting a post up uh, you know perfect example somebody had uh, shared a picture of a very famous columbus bakery that had a black lives matter um, sign in their window and I'm like well damn because they get so much of our business they better but behind <laughs> that is what are they actually doing right you know we can we can wear Black Lives Matter shirts and I'm saying this even for black folks um, I just I feel like you know what what's behind it what are you actually doing in my post I want people to really examine their role in this in this movement, how are you going to change? Um, white folks, it, it's painful, but you've got you've to unpack a lot of your own stuff that I can't help you with. And I can't say it's all good. Like, I can say that, but... That doesn't make it that true. That doesn't make it true. And so in, 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 in that work, you know, I think what this conversation highlights is that black identity and white identity is fragile, because we've created these identities within a context that's not really real, right? Race as a construct is exactly that, a construct. 
And so while there is a such thing as black culture and all the other culture is, you know, uh, white culture or white adjacent culture or culture in relation to white culture, that's why we have something called black culture in America, right? The work we have to do is understanding and unpacking those identities that we hold because we still have to wear masks, Right. Mm-hmm. Just because there was a civil rights movement, just because everything else is going on doesn't mean that black America can fully be who and what we are as individuals in white spaces. Yeah, because, right. I mean, even right now, we have to monitor right. what we say. We have to still wear those masks. Right. And so I think one thing to understand for a lot of the black people who have similar experiences as we are even thinking about engaging each other is that there's a continuum of black identity, just like black religious identity goes all the way from the most conservative Catholic, Presbyterian, Methodist, Episcopal kind of denominations to the most expressive and more culturally relevant in some cases, right? Apostolic Pentecostal that are more African esque in terms of how those rituals and religious practices reflect various cultures from Europe to Africa. The identity is the same way. There are folks of African descent who are African-American in America who want to be assimilationists, right? They want to assimilate into white culture and not deal with race. There are some folks who are segregationists. They don't want to deal with anything white. And then there are folks who don't want to assimilate and don't want to segregate, but they want to just be and, and be the fullness of who they are as beautiful black people and engage the world from that most authentic for them place, right? Mm-hmm. And I think white folks are the same. There are individual racists who want to just completely segregate. There are, you know, <laughs> your white liberals who King said he had problems with because they are often the ones that put barriers up without really thinking about it. You know, that implicit biased group. Yeah that think they get it, but because they think they get it, they can't learn, right? But there are those folks who do want to have a more authentic engagement with everyone. And then there are folks who completely are like, if you're in America, you should be American, right? So I think when, and and this is not a a binary because there are other ethnic groups. There are other layers of intersectionality in terms of sexual orientation, identification. We just don't have the time to get into all of that. Um, But I think as people consider how they engage, how they engage at the national civic level and interpersonally, having space for those various layers of identity, both for yourself and others, you know, helps you get in deeper relationship with with people, particularly if they aren't like you. Right. So you have to have space. Right. Black people. The best thing about us is that we're not a monolith. One of the things that gets on my nerves about us is that we're not a monolith. Right. Because if we were a monolith, I think the movement for liberation would be easier because we would all see it the same way. But we don't. And that's because we're human. Just like white people argue about what America should be. We argue about what black America should be. Right. And I think giving space for people to be themselves Mm -hmm. is the most important thing we can do, because everybody's always like white folk, especially. What can I do right now? And I would (laughs) I would add to that just as we wrap things up here, um, you know, listen and and don't insert your your don't center yourself. And, and, you know, intersectionality is important. 
right? It's it's great to to be able to say, oh yeah, and as a woman, as a white woman, this is what I've experienced. But that's not what this conversation is about. And if you're doing that, you need to stop doing that and you need to allow it to be what it is. Right, because your experience as a white woman has nothing to do in most cases, with the experience of a black woman. One example is suffrage, right? Yeah. White women got the right to vote in 1919, but what happened to black women? I mean, black women like Ida B. Wells worked for suffrage too, yet she didn't get the right to vote. And that's where the intersectionality comes in. Kimberly Crenshaw has a great, Dr. Kimberly Kimberly Crenshaw has a great book. I mean, she literally wrote the book on it. Um, And then there are other books that might be helpful. Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility, uh, Dr. Carol Anderson's White Rage. Um, and then again, I can't recommend this enough, Learning to Be White by Tandeka, T-H-A-N-D-E-K-A, and Racecraft by Dr. Karen Fields and Dr. Barbara Fields. Uh, Racecraft really deals with the, the construct of race and how we use language to reinforce it. Uh, white Rage and White Fragility deals with white identity, as does Learning to Be White. But the thing about Learning to Be White is that it also is a mirror for black identity. And if we don't understand the construct of race, then we can't break it down. And if we don't understand how our identities, both ethnically, gender-wise, and in the context of the community that we find ourselves, are built and constructed in the context, to your point about your uh, development from middle school, elementary to college, if we don't understand how that trauma is layered into those identities, then we often don't understand why people respond the way they do when we try to be nice or when we try you're to, so you know what I mean? Angry. Right, you're so I, angry. I don't know what I did to trigger her. Right. It's because of all these layered uh, traumas and all these layers of identification. And we don't always know who we need to be in certain contexts because as black people in America, we've never quite been able to be our full selves. And so, you know, I think a takeaway from this conversation is it's complicated and everyone has to do their work. And if America wants to really be what it says it wants to be, then black women have to have the space to be fully themselves and black people in general also. And I center black women in that because black men historically have tried to um, really model or, or go after the white patriarchal mm-hmm. idea. Yeah, that's a great point. Right? And that's toxic for us because that is not germane to who we are. And when we accept that as the model, then we cause harm to black women who we say we love. And so we all have some work to do. Um, and I think the first step is to just give mental space to those layers of identification and those layers of trauma and begin to unpack that for yourself so you can be in relationship with others. Yeah. I think that you just dropped a bunch of bars and um, I think we'll, we'll end there. Um, I would like to end by saying um, (laughs) Mark has a great quote. Will you say that quote about, I, I just posted it today on Facebook. Oh, that I don't have to be the fist. I don't have to walk into a room with my fist raised in the air because I am the fist. Be the fist, people. Be the fist. The fist represents your full self. When you walk into any space as your most authentic, fully optimized human self, 
then that power allows you to knock down any wall and any barrier. Ashe. Ashe. I'm Mark Lomax. And I'm Ruth Lomax, and this was Drumversations, the podcast. If you like this, please share. Like and share and comment. Comment, 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 please. We would love to hear from you. And um, subscribe. We're on iTunes and Spotify. Spotify. Y'all have a good one. Take it easy. Peace.